Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. It's good to see everyone, both your, I guess, not seeing your beautiful faces since they're covered under masks, and then for those of you who are joining us online. Uh, we are actually in between series right now, so this is just kind of a one-off message where we finished Jonah a couple weeks ago. We had church in the park. For those of you who made that there uh, last week, uh, my shoulder is still sore. <laughs> I feel like it's getting a little bit better from where I uh, try to play volleyball, which I may never try and do again. Uh, but this morning, we're going to actually be looking at this idea of standing together from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. So if you have your Bible, I want to go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be there in a few moments. The author of Philippians is the Apostle Paul, and he has said of the gospel, he says, this is the good news, and which is the heart of the Christian message, this, this good news that we talk about going and giving to others. He says, this is what we are to prioritize in our lives. So in other words, once you are in Christ, once you are a Christ follower, you are a, a Christian, then this should be a priority in really how you reorient your life. It should be the, the identifying factor of your life is this good news, this message that supposedly changed your life. Think about Jesus who came into this broken world, a world that we still live in. I mean, we're wearing masks right now because there's a broken world and because things like COVID and sickness still exist. He came into that world. He took upon himself sin and guilt and shame. Eventually, he went and died, and he raised victoriously so that all mankind, you and me included, can have the opportunity to be reconciled to God. That is good news, and that is the message that we have been given as carriers of that message, of this great commission to go and to make disciples. And part of that is sharing that message with others, to say, hey, there's good news beyond sickness. There's good news beyond COVID. There's good news beyond a pandemic. There's good news beyond the grave, and here is that good news. And we are to live as if this were true because it is true. And then we are invite others to take that journey of, of learning what it means to follow Jesus and really to what that priority is in our life. And so this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to come in. He's going to show us that this priority is not to be lived out alone. Okay, I think that kind of is counterintuitive to uh, American way and American culture. We like to do things on our own. This is why we went through that book called Radical Together this summer, just because it was talking about doing this together. And that's really New Testament Christianity. That's the church is doing it together, not doing it isolated, not doing it alone. And so Paul's going to say this is priority is not to be individualistic. Rather, this is to be a communal in nature. Now, I know we have some people in here who are, are not American-born from other countries. Your country probably got this way better than ours will ever get it. And so you recognize this, but now that we're in the United States, you've probably recognized that frustration of, wow, this is a very individualistic place, but this is not how the church is to be. This is not how Christianity is to be lived out, regardless how our culture is around us. You know, when you think about being a missionary, and wherever you live, you are a missionary if you're a Christian, our culture sometimes dictates things, and we'll try to culturally, contextually be like our culture, and there's some good in that, but there are some things that we have to push back and reject, and I think the individualistic aspect of American culture, the church should not be that way. Think about the church in Acts 2, one of my favorite passages, and for the record, the interns who were here this summer, the, the very first one, Claire, who you all got to meet, her, it was kind of her vision to come and do this. It was that passage. She said, man, I want to go somewhere and like live out you know, Acts 2. And so you can do that where you're, you're at in Texas as well, but let's come here and see what it looks like. But they took care of each other's needs. 
And so in a very real way, if you're in need, you know, I think the individualistic side of our culture says, but don't speak up and don't tell anyone you're in need. And so even this morning, if you're in need, let us know as your community of faith. At minimum, and I shouldn't even say at minimum, but at minimum, we can pray for you. And there's power in prayer. But, you know, also God may say, you know what, we're going to use the church to bless you to help meet that need. But this is hard for us as Americans because we've been trained to be so individualistic. Our mentality, even in the church, is this. It's often it's me and God. Right? It's my relationship with God. And so I know people who have left kind of the church and said, man, I'm just going to be out in nature every, every weekend on my motorcycle. And it's just going to be, you know, yes, you can do that. And there's something special about that. But that's how God, God designed it long term. Or it's me and my church life. You know, kind of you leave this alone. This is, this is my thing. And you kind of get protective of that. And you almost don't want others to come into that with you. It's me and my Bible, me, me, me and my quiet time. And it's me and my prayer time. And then we kind of take that to a, a dangerous degree and kind of go, it's, 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 it's me and, and just my time. And, and it's me and, and how I want to interpret things. But that's not how God designed the church to be. This mentality being that you show up and maybe you get fed, you receive a little bit, and you, learn, you return to your daily life. And you just live however you want, right? It's like kind of, you think about the church, like in, in this moment, when I think, when I'm saying this moment, like 10 a.m. to, for us, 11, 15, you think, okay, I'll, I'll do this thing. But then it's like outside those doors, I'm going to do kind of, I do me, you do you, do you, and then I'll see you next week kind of mentality. And I'm not necessarily speaking to you guys. I know some of us, Andrea, will be like, you're going hard on people. I'm talking about church in general, kind of the, the church of Portland, the church in the American culture. But Paul, the Apostle Paul comes in and says, this is not an accurate picture of how the church is to be. The church is not designed to be this way. It's not like swimming or playing golf, right? You do those things pretty much on your own. But the church is more like a team sport. I know we don't have our soccer coach here this morning, but it's more to be like soccer, it's to be like basketball. It's to be like American football, if you like, is starting back very soon. It's to be like volleyball, right? Not to look at myself, but I went down with an injury. And I don't know if my team won or not last week, but they have, someone else had to step in and do the volley since apparently I'm incapable of doing that at 35. If you watch the last, um, the, the documentary, The Last Dance, it's, I think it's on Netflix now, it was on HBO. If you haven't watched it, even if you're not a basketball fan, it's worth, it's, it's more of a docu-series on the life of Michael Jordan, who's arguably the best basketball player of all time. I know younger generations would say LeBron James, who I enjoy as well, but, but Michael Jordan, just no one's ever really played like him. But even Michael Jordan, with all his accomplishments, with all those championship rings, he didn't do that on his own. You never saw Jordan go out in the court and, and beat five different individuals. He probably could have done a decent job. You know, I could see him scoring like 30 points and maybe the other team scored 100 points. But in order to win, he had to have Scottie Pippen. He had to have other people around him. He had to have a coach around him. And so that is the same way with the church. Paul's saying in order to actually do this mission that God is giving you, you have to do it together. And so the main point of our text this morning is unity. We're going to see unity against external pressures, things that happen on the outside of the church, and then unity against internal pressures. And we're going to see that the gospel unifies us against pressure, struggles, divisions, and rivalries. In fact, Paul will tell us in our opening verse that we'll look at in a few minutes, he, he says, we are to be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side. Not where you find yourself alone. I think about temptation and sin and struggles. Like, right? If you're like me, and I think most of you probably are in this sense, when you find yourself in those things, it's when you're alone, right? That's when the temptation comes. That's when you slip up. That's when you give in to something. It goes, now no, you can't constantly be around somebody else, but going like, if you're doing this life together, this idea of life on life, then it's less likely to happen. You're less likely to give in. You'll have people who are there to help restore you back when you do give in, instead of you going deeper and deeper and deeper and further away from God. And so what does this, the, the idea of the word strive mean? Come on, if you're striving for something in your life, if you are striving in something, 
According to Webster's Dictionary, to strive means to devote serious effort, energy, or attention to something. And so, you know, that may be, once again, that may be coaching, right? That may be teaching. That may be being a barista. That may be as an accountant. Whatever it's like you're striving, right? You're going to take extra time out of your life to make sure that you're going to be the best at that thing. Whatever that thing happens to be, or maybe just a hobby, you know, or maybe music, and you want to be the best guitar player, the, guest, the best singer, but this means as the church, we are to be like a team of athletes and that we're to be joined together, locking arms side by side, doing whatever it takes, sacrificing for one another, right? As an individualistic society, we don't actually like to sacrifice for one another in most cases. I mean, that's inconvenient. Oh, your car broke down and you need a ride or your car broke down and you need help paying for it. You know, can't you get a better job so that you can pay for those things yourself? But that we should be doing these things together, bleeding for the cause doing whatever it takes in order to achieve the victory. Now, it's quite possible that we have a myriad of views this morning on church and what we think of in the American culture when we think of church. For some of you, what we're doing right now is church. I think, man, Sunday, 10 a.m., that's like that magical hour. If you were part of us for our first couple of years, we were 5 p.m. We were kind of that oddball, and everyone kept saying, you need to switch it to 10 a.m., so we switched it to 10 a.m. And so here we are, like, you know, this is what some of you think. Like, this is church, 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. For some of you, the church is the paid staff or leaders, which we don't actually have any of those because my salary comes from fundraise money. So, um, but for those of you who are in kind of vocational ministry, so some of you might look at me and go, well, Matt, you're a pastor, so you are, you're the church. Or for some of you, church operates more like a club you attend. Something you come in, you kind of receive some goods, and, and then you can go out and live your life the rest of the way. For some of you, church is more like a service where you consume the goods, and eventually, if you don't like that service, what do you do? You just go find another one that offers you better services. Something that you, you know, that's kind of like a normal almost thing in the American church, right? You just go find something better down the street. And once that one kind of wears off in the newness, you know, I think about what well, my phone's recording right now. So I think about like the new iPhone, right? I've got one of the newer ones. But as soon as that one launches next month, because I know myself, I'm going to be like, ooh, that one looks kind of shiny and attractive now, and I want to get that one. And that, that'll be good, right? I'm okay for the next couple of years. Uh-uh. A year later, I'll come up with another one, and I'll be like, ooh, that one's got like a little bit better camera. Some of you aren't like that, but I am like that. But we do the same thing with the church. We're like, oh, well, there's a new one opening up down the street, and I heard their band's better. Or there's a new one, I heard their speaker's better, or he speaks less time than what Matt speaks, or, or whatever it may be, and we can just go, and we can find that in the American church. Once again, there's other nationality, other countries, you don't have that luxury that we have. And so this morning, what I hope is we get a really clear picture of what the church actually is, and which, one of those, which none of those things is what I just listed. It's not the gathering, although gathering is part of what we do as a church. It's not the paid leaders. It's not a club. It's not some service offering goods. But the church, rather, is a team of men, women, and children who are locking arms for the priority. Once again, the priority, not something that's a priority in your life, for the priority of the gospel. And then we live that out as an imperfect community. We're never going to get that completely right. You know, I think about denominations and tribes, and there's a reason we have all of those, and they all probably get bits and pieces right, but I don't think one group kind of has the edge on the market saying we have got 100% right, but we're going to be an imperfect community where God has placed us, which for us is the city of Portland. We get to live that out, and it's not about us. It's Remember, the church exists for its non-members, so we exist more for those who aren't in the room this morning, that we go out as an imperfect community and we get to give this good news to those who are around us, which in our city is a lot of people who I believe need it. Not because we have the edge on them, but because we also needed it. And it's just that we have now, now discovered this truth that we want to go out and give this truth to others. And so although we are very individualistic as a culture in America, I think the majority of us long to be something of bigger. We long to be something bigger than ourselves. You might say, well, how do I know that? I think younger generations especially do. 
This is why a city like Portland, we have so many nonprofits. Like we have more nonprofits than we could ever volunteer for. for I've heard, I don't know if this is true to back it up, but I've heard we have more nonprofits than probably any other city in the nation. And so just think about what it is that you're passionate about. And there's probably a nonprofit that goes in line with that. This is why the Black Lives Matter movement has grown exponentially because people as a whole start recognizing that ongoing racism in our country is wrong and that one, there was actually ongoing racism and two, people wanted to be part of changing systems and culture. And so people kind of gravitated towards this, this group and this organization to say, well, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history and I don't want to miss my opportunity of getting in the boat. And so this seems like an organization that they'll jump in with. This is why last summer there were 70 plus nights of protest in our city because people longed to be part of something bigger than themselves and they didn't want to miss their opportunity in this cultural moment. They didn't want to fast forward to even this summer and go, oh man, I missed my chance. I missed my opportunity. And the examples could go on and on and on. But we want to be something that's bigger than ourselves. And what Paul was telling us this morning is that longing you have is actually a really good longing. I wouldn't even say that it's a longing that comes from God that's been put inside of each and every one of us. Even the most um, introverted person in the room, I promise you still want to be part of something bigger than yourself. You might just enjoy a lot of time by yourself and contribute to that thing, but you still want to be part of something bigger than yourself. And what Paul is going to say is that longing is meant to be met in this community, in this family, by you being on this team that we call the church. That's why I'm a, I'm a big proponent of the local church. Not just because I'm a church planner, not just because I'm a pastor. I've always just really loved the local church because I think in a holistic form of the local church, this is the bigger thing that most of us long to be part of. Now, I understand there's trauma and there's hurt and there's things in the past and we go, man, I'm gonna reject that. I don't wanna be part of that. I get that. But once again, I think a biblical holistic version that Paul is trying to point us to towards this morning is the, the, the true form, the best form of the church and that that is this thing that we're supposed to be part of. And that we're not to go out and do this life alone. I mean, think about the Christian walk, right? Jesus offers us all the same thing, the salvation. We have freedom in Christ. Come as you are. All that's true. But then once you get, become a Christ follower, life doesn't necessarily get easier for you, right? In some ways, life can get harder for you depending on where you live in the world. But God says it's not meant to be done alone. And so don't make it harder than it needs to be. If you're trying to do it on your own, this lone ranger Christianity, like that is not biblical Christianity. That's something else entirely. And it will be at least a little bit easier if you've got a shoulder to cry on and someone to be there with you. And so Paul comes in this morning. He's going to look at these verses and tell us what it means to be part of this movement known as the church. Paul's basically our coach this morning. And so Paul's going to come in. He's going to kind of huddle us up. He's going to tell us, this is what you signed up for. And this is what you've joined by attaching yourself to Jesus and his church. Because I would argue that it's not optional to be part of the church if you are in Christ. And so Christ has offered you this, and then he's linked you with the church. I think a lot in our generation, I, you know, I get it, and there's healthy forms of this and health, unhealthy forms, and that's not the purpose of this message, the idea of deconstructing. And we deconstruct to the point that we totally leave the church. Because I mean, it's just me and God. That's not how it was designed. God himself, even if that's how we feel, did not leave it that way. God said, here is this, my Holy Spirit, and here is the church. It's one of the last things he left us to then go and make disciples. Think, what is a church? Well, you can go into an area where there's no churches at all. You can share the gospel. You hopefully see people get saved because the Holy Spirit's working in their lives. You form them into these things that we call disciples, which we all are those. And then you have a picture of a church. And that's the New Testament church. And so regardless your views, regardless your questioning, which we kind of welcome in, in, in a sense, but that God left it this way. And so not to say God said so, but in a sense, God said so. God left it this way, and this is how we are to be followers of Christ. So let me pray for our time, and we'll get into the actual text this morning. God, thank you once again for allowing us to gather as your church. God, I pray this morning that we would see what it looks like to stand together, what it looks like to be unified. God, that we would see a holistic 
picture of your church, not what we've made it in America, not the maybe the performance-driven and studies and stats based on things that don't really matter, God, but that we would see a group of people, an imperfect group of people who are pursuing you and wanting to share your love with the people around them. God, we love you. We give you this time. Amen. So look with me now at Philippians 1. We'll start in verse 27. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, it's easy for us to just kind of breeze by the word only in verse 27, but I think it's vitally important for what Paul is wanting to convey for us here. Think the word only more as the word fully. In other words, he's saying, do this one thing, right? If you're on a job or I think about with my children, if I'm about to leave them for a few minutes, which I don't do that yet, mom, but if I'm about to leave them for a few minutes, I might say, do this one thing, right? Like that's how your ears are supposed to perk up. So Paul's saying, do this one thing. And the Greek phrase for only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel can also be translated as behave as citizens, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, which if you're with us throughout Kingdom Manifesto, we really focused on that. What does that look like to live as citizens of kingdom of heaven? And so in other words, Paul isn't saying live in this way so that you can earn the gospel of Christ, right? I think that's where we get misinterpreted sometimes. We, we'll hear a message from Paul, and it's like, beat your chest, pull up your bootstraps, and earn the gospel of Christ. Like, no, 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 it's already been given to us, so more so Paul is proclaiming what is already true to the church in Philippi, what is already true to us this morning because of Christ. And so Paul is admonishing them to live as if it were true because it is true. In other words, it, it's not necessarily based, or it's not really based at all on your feelings, because there's mornings you wake up, including myself, that you don't feel like the gospel's true. You know, depending on what you're going through right now, you might be in a painful season of life that you don't feel like this is the reality. But Paul's saying, regardless how you feel, regardless what's going on in your life, live as if it were true because it is true, because God declares it to be true, regardless how you are feeling, regardless if you're in a season of struggling, regardless if you are deconstructing to still operate. And this, that's where faith comes in, right? You go, you know what? I don't feel this today. And God, God can handle that. I'm like, talk to God. Tell God, right? We see parts of Scripture where there's people argue with God. People wrestle with God. God can handle that. You say, I may not feel this way, but I'm choosing to still believe it because you say that it's true, because you declare that this is true, because you declare that this is how it is to be. It's like the coach of an underdog team, right? We all love the underdog stories. That's why movies are always made about underdogs. But it's like the coach of the underdog team coming to them and holding up the team and saying, guys, look, I know we're the underdogs. Vegas has bet against us. Somehow we have made it all the way to the championship game. You are professionals. You get paid to do this. So go out there and play like it's true, right? And the whole idea, with, once again, the NFL starting soon. So any given Sunday, your team could win, even if they're the underdog team. And so it's like the coach saying, here, this is what's going to happen. Get out there and do it because it's true. Even if you don't feel like it. I know we had the worst record going into the season. I know we had the worst record, and somehow we squeaked it into the playoffs. We found ourselves in the championship game. Now go out there and play like the professionals that you are paid to be. And so Paul's saying, go out there and live out the gospel. Live out this reality that is yours in Christ Jesus, because it never had anything to do with you in the first place. Think about Jonah. We just finished Jonah a couple of weeks ago. It was like, Jonah, go and proclaim this message because the message is true. I don't care how you feel about it. God may have not been so harsh about that, but maybe it was. He took the tree away from him and Jonah got really upset and mad. But he's saying, go and live this message because this is my heart for these people, regardless how you feel. But Paul does not come in and pose a long list of rules, 
right? I think that's what we like to do, right? We think, oh, now you're a Christian. Let me give this long list of things to do. And, and that's where it kind of feels like, man, it feels kind of like legalism. And it feels kind of like I've got to do all this stuff to earn it. But Paul doesn't do that. Rather, what does Paul do? Paul comes in, he presents the person of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the story of Christ, and he says, this is the rule for the community of believers. Go and live this way because of Jesus' life. So Paul doesn't hold up a mirror to us in that moment. He holds up a picture of Jesus, say, this is why you're to live this way. Because if you hold up a mirror of yourself, then yeah, you're gonna crumble. You're never gonna feel like this is true. You're never gonna feel like you can make it through a day in this life. But he says, go and live this way because of Jesus. Because the gospel of Christ proclaims that Jesus is the exalted Lord of all, the Lord that emptied himself and humbled himself and was obedient to death on a cross. This is the example that we're given. And the gospel of Christ is what provides our motivation and the pattern for all Christian behavior. We are to go and to do this because of Jesus' life. And Paul says to live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That these are the citizens, this is our citizenship that should be more than our, our actual citizenship. Whether you're an American citizen or whether you're an Argentinian citizen or whether you're a Rwandan citizen, that our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. This is why you can go around the, the world and connect with the global church because our citizenship being in heaven, our brothers and sisters around the world, that we can strive together with them. And, to, and what it means to live as a good citizen of an earthly state and as a good citizen of the new state, this heavenly commonwealth, that this has been given to us, albeit a poor reflection on this earth, but this idea of uh, having it here in Portland as it is in heaven, that we can already start living out this reality as brothers and sisters. Right? Think about the church and think about, I don't think um, heaven's gonna be the one just long worship service because I know some people love that idea. I personally don't get excited about that. I do love singing worship songs. I'm really bad at picking them out, but I don't guess to get excited about that. But I think like this reality that we can't even think of and what that's actually gonna be like. And so it's a, a poor reflection, but we might as well get used to being together now because we're gonna be together in heaven for all of eternity, worshiping Jesus. So I think part of it will be that, but it's gonna like, our worship pales. I mean, you did great this morning, but our worship pales in comparison to nothing what's going to be there. Like, it's going to be something we just can't even fathom and we can't even think about, but we can start living that reality out now. And Paul wants the members of the church to be united. Think about something that's united, right? You think about, think about teams, think about sports. People aren't united. That's when a team loses, right? There's miscommunication or there's no communication or you were going to pass the ball over here, but pass it over here. That's when they fall apart and that's when the church falls apart. We're all members of one body, but if all the members are trying to, if my legs are both trying to walk a different way, I'm going to end up doing a split, right? Or whatever happened last week with my arm and, and I got injured that way. Like, that's what the church looks like when we're not operating together and functioning together. And Paul defines three specific aspects of their life as citizens. So citizens of this heavenly kingdom. This is one, that you stand firm in one spirit, that you're that, that unifying factor is the spirit of God. Second is we strive together with one accord for the faith of the gospel, that we do that together. Right? What I love when I think about the church is I love that we gather together on Sunday, but I also love that we scatter throughout the week because in a very real way, we have missionaries in all kinds of um, different sectors of life. We have missionaries here that are accountants. We have missionaries here that are with the IRS. We have missionaries that are uh, coaches and teachers and moms, interpreters, baristas in the army. On and on, we have, we have these, these missionaries that go out every single week because we're doing this in one accord for the faith of the gospel. We can link arms together to help go out and to share this message, to make disciples together. And the third thing says, Paul says, is without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Because Paul's gonna show us the, the real stark realities that we will be opposed. And it, it may not look this, as, as, as uh, the opposition may not look as strong for us, but it is for some of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. And we'll look at that here in just a couple minutes. And these three phrases unpack the obligations of what it means to be a good citizen of the heavenly kingdom. 
This direction to stand firm, it translates a Greek verb that means to be firmly committed in conviction. And so the Christians in Philippi needed to preserve their commitment to Christ when adverse adversaries attacked them for their faith in Christ. He says you need to be committed. You think about the ability to stand firm is found in that one spirit, in the Holy Spirit that unifies us together. And so when life gets tough for you, will you stand firm? How will you stand firm? I've, I've tried to do the Christian walk on my own before. It doesn't last very, very long. You know, you're like, you know, I'm done with that church. And you, I'm sure you've all been there. You don't have to agree. You don't have to say amen. You don't have to shake your head. But there's weeks where I'm like, I'm done. I'm done with the church. I can't do it anymore. Right? But then I try my own and Evelyn's like, no, I can't. I've got to come back because God's called me to this imperfect group of people. And so Paul continues to paint these pictures of Christians united together in a battle by adding this dramatic expression, striving together. That we'll strive together. A military image of soldiers fighting side by side. That they're going into battle. And the reality is that we are in a battle. We are in a spiritual battle. There's, there's a, a world that we can't see in the spiritual realm. And we're not protected against it just because we're Christ followers. Like we're told that opposition is normal. That's what Paul's telling them here. We're told that persecution is normal and will be normal. And when Christians stand firm in one spirit, this is the result that we'll see. It says they're striving together with one accord for the faith of the gospel. And Paul's image of striving together with one soul conveys this idea of unity among Christians. And we don't see unity if we're trying to do it on our own. And when Christians are fighting against each other rather than side by side, unity is lost. I think we see a lot of that in the church. Don't go on Twitter. If I don't know if anyone else is on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Christian Twitter is worse than regular Twitter. And what I mean by that is you see all these Christians fighting and bickering and you know, calling each other out for different things. And I'm just like, this is just unhealthy. I'm just going to shut down the app and turn it off. I'm sure Facebook's just as bad. I just try not to look at Facebook very much. Twitter's the one that sucks me in a little bit. But Paul seeks to see a unified church, not a divided church. And so my question for us, church, is will we strive together? Even when the times get tough, even when we feel like we're being opposed, will it be said of us that we are striving as one person? So you're not supposed to be striving as an individual, but together we're supposed to be striving in such a way that we are in step with one another. Think about a, a marching band, right? Like a marching band has got it really, really together. You can look at them and they're, they're going as like one unit. That's what the church is to be. We're not supposed to be, well, yeah, we're supposed to be scattered in the sense of being a missionaries, but we're supposed to have the same mind, the same spirit in doing it in one accord that we can look at them and go, man, they are in line together because God has called them to this as a community, not as an individual. Now, this challenge might smack us right in the face this week, yet again. Yes, again. This week is Governor Brown, Kate Brown issued a statewide mask mandate. I'm holding this up for you online. I'm, I'm wearing it except for when I'm preaching so I don't pass out. For all indoor venues. Now, just six weeks ago, they lifted this mandate, and we were all like, "Woo! we can throw our mask off, and we can start going to parties again and have a Like, this is great. And I don't know if anyone was looking forward to that as much as I was, and summer was great. It was refreshing. We got to be around people, and even with our interns, when we were planning it this year, I said, look, you might come, and everything's going to be shut down, and we might just prayer walk every single day. And they didn't like the sound of that, and so we'll do it like they did at the Wall of Jericho. But we got to do things. But here we are again. Right? Here we are again with the mask mandates being in place. Now, some of us were likely encouraged by this. Some of us likely said, yes, finally, why did they wait so long? Why did they let six weeks go by without us putting masks back on? This is being, in, you know, endangering children and others, and those are vulnerable. And others of you maybe were disappointed. And maybe you're like, again, come on, like, I got the vaccine, or the vaccine's out, or we're at the right percentage. Like, why do we have to do this? Does the government really have this much control over us? Now, regardless which camp you fall into, 
That's not what we're getting into this morning. We've been presented with an opportunity. Rather than letting this one camp or the other make a kind of the deciding factor or be what defines us, rather than make this a political or a religious freedom, because that's not what we're going to make it about here, we instead get to strive together in unity as the church by following Christ's example, Christ who laid down his life for other people, for, for the sake of others, in a practical and hospitable way. And so we do this, we, we are adhering to this, not to be political, but because we want to care for one another in our community. We want to care for those in our broader community. And selfishly, I want us to be able to gather this fall and winter and not have to shut down because, you know, the virus continues to spread and we can't do that. And I know we all have our opinions. I have my opinion. My wife and I aren't even 100% on the same page with this. And you may not be either with your significant other. And that's okay. But we're not going to let it divide us. We're going to stand together. We're going to strive together. Now, here's the reality. And Paul's going to show us this. He shows the church at Philippi this. Spiritual warfare is real. And the, the enemy wants nothing more than to disunify the church. He wants the church to lose its unity. He wants the church to be at odds with one another. When I look at Christian Twitter, I'm like, the enemy loves that. Like maybe, maybe who's behind that is the enemy. Loves seeing that. The enemy loves it when churches close their doors. The reality is the pandemic in general is just really hard on churches, both church plants and established churches. I know four churches near my house alone who shut their doors permanently because of the pandemic. That's kind of like the final straw. I know a number of other churches just in our city alone. And so we're kind of going backwards when you think about, about the church. But what will Paul admonish us to do? Paul describes the work that unites the church in this phrase for the faith of the gospel. Everything we do here at Sojourn should be filtered through that. Everything that we do, all the decisions are made are through that, that for the faith of the gospel. You guys have heard this before, but think about glasses, right? I think some of us in Portland, we, we, we wake up and put on our Portland glasses, and we interpret everything through the culture and how the culture wants us to live and when the culture wants us to move. But at, at Sojourn, and, and I think as all Christians, what we should do is put on our gospel lenses as we go out into culture, and that we can live like culture, we can be contextual, and we can cuff our jeans and wear different clothing and <laughs> do these things. But everything we actually do when it comes to decisions of life are filtered through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is showing us here is that it's for the faith of the gospel. And that Christians are united when they fight side by side with one soul for the faith of the gospel. Now, unfortunately, if you study the book at Philippians, we're only looking at one chapter this week. Actually, the whole book last summer. But they were fighting against each other rather than fighting for the faith of the gospel. And we find that a lot. If you've been in church for any length of time, like you've probably experienced that. You've probably experienced some bickering, some fighting. You may even experience a church split. There used to be a time and place, I'd say, maybe not if you had been at Sojourn, but Sojourn's even had some of that ourselves, even in our short history, where we've kind of had some, some division. And when you see the aim of fighting side by side, it's not against anyone, but for the faith of the gospel. We get distracted, right? We get off on things in the church. And when Christians focus on proclaiming the gospel and living the truth of the gospel, they will all be soulmates, striving together with one soul, and so Paul is giving us practically what this looks like. What does it look like when you go and live this out? What does it look like to do this together? It's like we're, we're citizens on dual tracks, that we are citizens of the city of Portland and what it looks like as people of God to live out our faith here in this place where he's called us. And then we're also citizens where we are together, we get to call other people into that reality as well, that we are citizens of the gospel city. And that Portland doesn't look that way yet, but by God's grace and, and God's called us all to be here, it'll look more like the city in heaven as us living here and that living out that reality. You know, we spent seven months in the, in the Sermon on the Mount and 
Someone the other day asked me, um, what was, what's your favorite sermon you've ever preached? What's your favorite series? And I was like, well, the longest was the Sermon on the Mount, so I'm going to say that one. But I think that that is a reality. If we live out that reality, the church, not just Sojourn, but all the church in Portland, lived out the Sermon on the, the, the Mount to its umpteenth degree, like how different would our city look? How unified would our church look? The poor would be taken care of, right? The brokenness wouldn't, wouldn't exist to the extent that it does, and that reality, if the church as a whole were living out that out, there probably wouldn't be children in foster care because they'd all be adopted, right? There's all these things that the church would come together, but instead we get distracted and we, you know, bicker over chairs and carpet and paint on buildings and length of service and all these other things in the peripheral don't actually matter that much. And so Paul's coming and saying the gospel message, as living as a citizen of the kingdom, it should affect your work life. You should be an employee, whether you tell them you're a Christian or not, you should be employed that they notice there's something different about you. This should affect your family life, your, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your children, your relationship with your siblings. This should affect your hobbies and how it is that, that, that you live within that tribe and that you operate there. This should affect, in fact, every area of your life as we are called to advance the gospel, not just the message, but seeing it in Portland as it is in heaven, and that God has placed you in those places. So think about your house, whether you're renting or own. God's placed you in that street for a reason. It may be for a year, it may be for five years, but God's placed you there for a reason. Your job, the person you work next to, the person that you have to communicate with online if you're still working online, the person you serve coffee next to, the family who you watch their children, God's placed you there for a reason. And it might just be for a season, but to live this reality out. Now, we know it's easier said than done, right? It's easy for me to get up here and say, you should go and live this way because Paul, through Jesus, has told us to live this way. But the actual reality and practicality is, is a little bit harder. And so let's look at verse 28. Paul says, And not frightened at anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And so as the Philippians maintain courage to face their, op- their opponents, these opponents will realize that this such remarkable strength could, could only from God, even in the midst of their potential destruction, that the strength that they have, there's no way that it can come from themselves, but it's only from the Spirit of God within them. And after explaining what it means to stand firm in the positive sense of striving together, Paul strengthens their resolve by negatively stating what it means to stand firm. He says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And so Paul's instruction is to stand firm without being frightened. He calls for Christians not to be agitated, not to be terrified on the battlefield. Christians are not to be intimidated in any way. He says, no matter how powerful the opposition is, that you're not to be shaking in your boots. There's nothing should shake the resolve of those who stand firm in one spirit, that regardless what is coming our way, that we can say, we're going to stand together. We're not going to back down, but not, once again, not in our own strength, because we'll crumble and fall, but we're not going to back down because the Spirit of God is real, and the Spirit of God is within us, and Paul assures his readers of this, that their commitment is to stand firm, striving together without being frightened, that it's a sign. And if you think about sign, it serves as an indicator or something, right? If you're driving your car down the street, and a red light comes on, or an orange or yellow light, you should probably maybe pull over, it's a red light, but if you're driving, like, pay attention, what is that? Is it need the oil change? Is my check engine light on? You know, what else is going on? It's serving as an indicator, serving as a warning for something else that is coming up and what is happening. In the same way, standing from your faith and, and with one spirit serves as a sign to other Christians, to other Christ followers. We see this, this, this sign, good or bad, go, man, they're doing something. I need to pay attention to this. And that's why I love the, the, I feel like as far as unity in the church, I experience it in Portland probably more than I ever did back where I grew up. 
and that we do see a lot of unifying here. And you might see something that another church is doing, and it's not a competition. We're all on the same team, and you go, man, there's a, there's a sign for us that I should pay attention to. And man, it seems like the Spirit of God is leading us into this season as, as a city and as a church, and how can we link arms, and how can we do some of these things together? We see the steadfastness of faith of Christians uniting their witness to Christ presents a sign that is interpreted in opposite ways by those inside the church and those outside the church. While Christian unity for the gospel is a sign to those outside the church of a Christian's de- de- uh, destruction, it is a sign of those inside the church of their salvation. Here's the encouraging thing. The certainty of this salvation rests not on human striving, but on God. That's good news. Because our salvation, it's evidence that God is God and that God works and that God's in every aspect of salvation. How do I know that? Because he saved someone like you who didn't deserve salvation. Well, how do I know that? Because he also saved someone like me who didn't deserve salvation. And also, salvation's made available to all. So if you can hear my voice this morning, whether you're in the room or whether you're online, also because salvation is available to you this morning. It's available to every single one of us. That's why I know that. And that God is a source of all aspects of salvation. Every single source. He's the source of us, our ability to stand firm in one spirit. We can't do it on our own. This is why we did midweek prayer this summer. That's why on Wednesday night we just said we're just going to pray because we need God to show up and work. We can't do this in our own effort. We try and we will fail. I've tried over the few years I've lived in Portland to do certain things for sojourn. I always end up falling flat on my face. I get really frustrated. And I'm like, oh, what do I do? And God's like, all right, there you go. That's your posture. I remember one time I literally was walking. Some of you heard this. I was walking, and I was just really frustrated where things were and didn't feel like we were kind of at the place I wanted us to be. And I was like, God, I'm just so done with this. And as soon as I did this, it was like, God was like, boom, now I can show up. Now you've got the right posture. And so a lot of times we just need to posture ourselves in, in prayer and just seek the Lord and say, God, we need you to move. We need you to work. I think it's okay sometimes. And I'm like anyone, you, you don't want to not have the answer. And some of them, what, what's this season going to like? What's this? And you might go, I don't know. <laughs> We, don't know, we want God to fill the blank for us. We know that we're called to go make disciples. We know that much. We know that God called us to do it in this, na- this neighborhood, in this city. But there's some of the things that we don't know. And we want God to come and fill in the blank and show us how it is that we are to do that. Now, this may not be the most encouraging message. because You're talking about being opposed and having opposition and having to stand firm together. But as a Christ follower, we need to be ready for this. And that was, that's what Paul was telling the church at Philippi. He says, you need to be ready for this and to own this. Why is that? Because it's always been this way for Christ followers. It's been this way for Christ followers ever since there were Christ followers. Because salvation might be free, and it is free, and if you need it this morning, please come. It's available, it's made available to you, but it's also costly. We are told throughout the New Testament, but, that, but somehow we forget about it. I think it's easy in our country to forget it. I want to do a better job of preparing us for this. You know, one of the job of a leader is to equip. And so I want us to feel all equipped when we get opposed. Because you will be opposed. More and more and more. You will be opposed. Although we are not to the level of other nations, and we may never get there as far as we think about our persecuted brothers and sisters, that day may come. I know for some, I think about boomers, and I can hear my dad who's probably watching this morning, and he's saying, man, I've never known it to be this bad in our country. And that may be true. That may be a reality. And it may be harder to live out the Christian ethic and live as a Christ follower now than it ever has in the history of the United States. But we're still not to the level of our brothers and sisters in other nations. But we might get there. And I want us to be ready if and when that day would come. I've seen so many casualties of people kind of in the church in the city of Portland since I moved here. People would have come in and you would have, you would have said, man, they're a strong Christ follower. They're standing firm. And it's just like, 
something happens at some point, and they're like sand when we were down at the beach the other day, and just the sand just gets blown away with the wind. And all of a sudden, they want nothing to do with the church. And that's usually it starts there, still them and God. And all of a sudden, they want nothing to do with the church. They want nothing to do with God. I've seen so many casualties. I want us to be prepared when things come our way, whether it comes to us as an individual or comes to us as a church. And then Paul says, you also will suffer. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So troubles will come because the reality is that believers in Christ will suffer for his sake. And Paul teaches that suffering is both a gift of God for both Paul, and it's been a gift that's been granted to us. Suffering for the sake of Jesus is considered a great privilege. We don't have to answer that this morning, but would you consider that? Would you consider a great privilege? If we went around and did a poll this morning, said, you're going to suffer for Jesus, and we filled in how you might suffer, how, how, how some of our brothers and sisters in other areas, would you say, man, it's a great privilege for me, for me to do that? The Sunday school answer is yes, but for the reality for us in the United States, we've gotten to live really comfortable, even in I mean, we're considered the least religious, most atheistic city, and it's still fairly easy to be a Christ follower here, right? Like, no one's coming in, barging down the doors. Now, they might come in, and I'm not wearing a mask and give me a $1,000 fine, but the rest of you are okay because you're all wearing your mask right now. But, like, is that really persecution? No, I don't, I don't think so. And Paul, again, holds himself out as an example of one who's maintained his joy while experiencing the same conflict. If you study the life of the Apostle Paul, I mean, he was in prison and out of prison and in prison again. Like, he lived out this reality. So he's not someone who's just, you know, up in their ivory tower writing this letter to us. He's writing most of these letters from prison. Like, he is living out this reality. And he goes on to explain that this salvation, God does not exclude the experience of suffering. And so when I hear sometimes people proclaim this message, it's like health and wealth gospel, this, this false gospel, that, man, everything's going to be good, and you're, you're always going to be healthy, and life's going to be great, and you're going to drive really expensive cars, right? Now, there's days, I'm like, man, that sounds kind of attractive. It'd be kind of fun to have a private jet and a really nice car, right? And you might feel that way too. But that is not biblical Christianity. That is a business. That's, that's being a con artist. It's something entirely different. And so God does not exclude suffering from the life of a Christian. In fact, salvation by God includes suffering on behalf of Christ. For Paul asserts, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And so this key to understanding Paul's inclusion of suffering within salvation is his threefold repetition of these phrases on the relationship of the believer, on behalf of Christ, on him, and for him. Now, if we think this suffering was just for biblical times, or we equate suffering to somehow complying with mask wearing for public health, safe, for the safety of the public, let me tell you a story that, that I was looking at. We were talking about this this morning for those of you who were here and we were helping uh, set up. But this is some unsettling news for us, you know, because I get, we all have our opinions on this, right? And I go back and forth on my opinion. I don't, I don't mind, mind sharing that. And, you know, is it doing good? Is it not? And you kind of feel this, this way, right? But I think one of the things that I've watched kind of like from a place of privilege as American Christians is we'll use this to say, man, we're being persecuted and the government's not going to tell us this. And, you know, that's fine. You can have your opinion. You're more than welcome to that opinion. But then when I read about the, the reality of, of Christians suffering on behalf of Christ in other countries, just this, this week, literally our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, if you've been keeping up with the news, the, the Taliban is on the verge of taking back over Afghanistan, the, the country of Afghanistan. And so I saw a senior editor with World Magazine shared this, and actually it was on Twitter. She said, a person who works with the house church networks in Afghanistan, because it's illegal to convert to be a Christian in this country, so these are house churches, says a, a network house church leader received letters last night from the Taliban warning them that they know where they are and they know what they are doing. 
Okay? We don't live in that reality. I think it's hard for us to even put our minds in that reality. There's no equivalent for us receiving a letter in our country saying, we know what you're doing, we know where you are. But they've received this letters, and the leaders of the House Church Network say they aren't going anywhere. And so it begins. These Christians will suffer on behalf of Christ because of their public identification with Christ. Like, that's already reality in their country, but the fact now that the Taliban is going to take back over their country and the fact they receive a letter saying, we know where you are and we know what you're doing. In other words, we have been watching you and most likely been waiting for our opportunity to persecute you. These Christians live in a hostile country to Christianity. And so our prayer for them, based on what Paul is telling us, isn't that necessarily persecution would go away. Not that we're ever to go out and seek it. Our prayer for them is that they can stand firm in one spirit as the church, as they face this reality. And the reality is we receive this letter and they know that, man, this means that my family, I might get separated from my family. I might get beat up. I might get killed for my faith if this is true, if this is reality. And our prayer is that they would stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And this isn't a hypothetical for them. This is a reality that our brothers and sisters are facing right now in this moment as we gather safely in the city of Portland. This is the reality. The late theologian J.I. Packer put it this way. He said, God uses chronic pain and weakness along with other afflictions as his chisel for sculpting our lives. Felt weakness deepens dependence on Christ for strength each day. The weaker we feel, the harder we lean. And the harder we lean, the stronger we grow spiritually, even while our bodies waste away. And so after interpreting the meaning of suffering in light of their relationship to, to Christ, Paul now adds a note to the relationship to him and their suffering. He says, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And so their partnership with Paul brought them into this same struggle that Paul had. And you think about the, the, the church throughout history, the majority of the church did suffer in some way and, and actually was persecuted in some way. And so Paul draws from images of athletic contests to portray his suffering. He says, forgetting what is behind and straying towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. And so Paul ran his, way, his race to know Christ and to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings. That was the goal for Paul. That should be the goal for us, whether we ever physically receive persecution in this country or not. And the purpose of this vivid picture of an athletic Paul running hard to win the prize is to motivate those who see it to run the same race. In other words, Paul was writing this to encourage them. And so as our brothers and sisters enter into probably a new heightened level of persecution in Afghanistan, one, we can pray for them, but this should encourage us to go, regardless what you endure, American church, regardless what you endure, Church of Portland, regardless what you endure, Sojourn Church, let us encourage you by us in Afghanistan receiving this persecution, standing firm in one mind and one spirit because of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and that we can join together and follow in their example. And so his battle cry, the Apostle Paul to the Church of Philippi, is to stand firm for the faith of the gospel and that to persevere in the same struggle that he himself was experiencing. And so we are now to live as sojourn church in light of that reality, the reality of Jesus who suffered on the cross as a way to advance his message, this good news, the gospel that he brought to give to us. And the way for Christ to be exalted and the way that his grace goes forward is he's given it to, to us and say, go and just spread this message, spread this good news. Even our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are still to spread this news to others in the face of persecution. 
And we think about the example of Jesus who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point even of death on a cross and that we are now to live in that reality of Jesus' resurrection as we stand shoulder to shoulder in the battle. And you think, well, how, you know, once again, we've already discussed this. It's easy, you know, relatively easy in our country. But we stand with our brothers and sisters in other countries. And so I would call you. I would, you know, I'm, I'm always careful not to say go and do this this week. But one of those things I would say go and do this week is pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Take time every day. I don't care if it's morning, night, evening. I don't really don't care. You can sit on the toilet for all I care. Just pray for them. Take some time and pray for them because they're facing a reality that we may never face. And if we're to stand with them shoulder to shoulder in light of this reality of Christ, we want to be interceding for them. Realizing one day that the battle will be over. And until that day, we long for that day. And so what we're going to do is we're moving to a time of reflection. And what we're going to do is I invite you to consider what you've heard this morning. I invite you to consider how that, that might cause you to respond, to praise God, to repent of sin, to trust in his gracious promises, to commit to pray for our brothers and sisters in persecuted areas, specifically Afghanistan. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite Penelope to come back up, and we'll sing one more song. But take some time to reflect on just what it is that, that you've heard this morning from the Word of God. And let's take some time to commit to praying for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and other persecuted areas. So let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, move into our response this time. God, I want to come to you, and God, I thank you for our, your, uh, the salvation you offered us, first off. But God, I also thank you that you left us your Holy Spirit, but then you also left us one another. You said you don't have to do it on your own. I don't want you to do it on your own. I want you to have each other to stand firm, shoulder to shoulder, as we live out the reality of our kingdom citizenship in light of Jesus, in light of the life that Jesus lived and the death that Jesus died and the resurrection that Jesus offered us new life. God, I pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan this morning. God, a hard, stark reality, a reality we may never experience, God, a reality we may only ever read about. But God, you've called us to one church, one global church. And so we pray for them this morning. God, we ask that they can stand firm, God, in the midst of uh, whatever they're facing this morning, whatever they're facing right now in this moment. God, I don't even know what time it is there. God, for the individuals, for the families, for the men, the women, the children, for the church leaders. God, that the church can link arms and stand firm in one spirit, even in the midst of facing the reality of persecution possible reality of even death. God, may we pray for them, and God, may they sense our prayers coming for them. We love you, Lord. We give this time over to you. In your name, Jesus. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.